1: And
0: go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. you You're listening to do Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: Slater, Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. we got a ton to do, obviously. Uh, got to talk about the debacle that was this farce of a health care bill. What the heck was going on? it's it's so bad The everything the bill was bad the way they unveiled it was bad the way they pitched it marketed it explained it tried to fight for it like the whole thing was bad so amateur i i uh and so far off I, I wrote on facebook the other day that we don't just need to repeal obamacare right that's the big debate like do we repeal or not repeal like whoa that. Not only do we need to repeal it, we need to repeal the last hundred years of healthcare mandates and regulations and government control. This bill wasn't even close, right? (laughs) That's just a sign of how not close it was. We're not like, hmm, should we repeal? Yeah, you should repeal Obamacare. And way more. We'll break all that down coming up uh, in a few hours. But I loved what Matt Walsh, uh, Blaze's own Matt Walsh, wrote on Twitter. He said, voters, the voters said, here, Republicans, control every branch of government. Don't let us down. And the Republicans, trips, stabs self, falls into ocean and drowns. (laughs) It's like, guys, you've totally blown it. Not a good sign. And and such an incredible betrayal when for the last eight years, the Republicans have said, oh, listen, we, we, we want to so badly, but we can't repeal Obamacare until we have the majority. And now the line is, well, geez, I mean, if we repeal Obamacare, we're going to lose our majority. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. No, no, no. If you don't repeal it, you will lose your majority, and you deserve to lose it. Anyway, don't get me going. We'll talk more about that coming up uh, a little later. I want to start with Gorsuch, though. Um, let's start here with a, a clip of Senator Feinstein from California, who, you should know, is celebrating her 138th year in the Senate. So we're really... Uh, i excited for her, uh, being a longtime senator from California. Uh, let's start with 1421, gentlemen.
0: This is personal, but I find this originalist judicial philosophy to be really troubling. In essence, it means that judges and courts should evaluate our constitutional rights and privileges as they were understood in 1789. However, to do so would not only ignore the intent of the framers, that the Constitution would be a framework on which to build, but it severely limits the genius of what our Constitution upholds. I firmly believe the American Constitution is a living document intended to evolve as our
2: country evolves. Mm, okay. Uh, let's chat about this. Let's chat about living Constitution verse, versus what? A dead Constitution? No, an enduring constitution. That's what Justice Scalia would call it. It's not a dead constitution. It's an enduring constitution. And the reason it endures forever is because it is written to control a uh, one thing that never changes. And that is human nature. If we got back to the constitution and the proper size and scope of government, then the constitution's here to restrain ambition and power of politicians and bureaucrats over our lives that will never change, right? For, for, for of all time and for all time in the future, people want power. They, they want power and they're ambitious. And the constitution is there to put chains on those people to protect your God given freedom that, that it will be true forever because human cha- nature will never change. But what Feinstein just did, there was a, a just classic uh, misunderstanding of what, an enduring constitution means and and what do they think a living constitution is. Uh, I want to play one more clip here. This is justice Breyer. Who's a progressive judge and justice Scalia, who of course just passed away, who was uh, a conservative judge. So Breyer is the living constitution guy, just like Feinstein and Scalia obviously is the enduring constitution guy. I want to play this clip here because Breyer starts off talking about why the living constitution is bad. And then Scalia, I think puts him, properly in his place. And then we'll break it down. 1422.
0: The normal way in which the phrase is used, though it's become something of a cliché, and so I don't like to use it because it takes on a pejorative meaning, but I think that underlying the idea was that if you go back to the end of the 18th century uh, and you examine what the founders thought, say about the Commerce Clause, they didn't think of the Internet and they didn't think of television and they didn't think of the radio or automobiles, et cetera. But they wrote a value into that clause, and that value is permanent, like the value under the First Amendment is permanent. Free speech is a value that's permanent. But how you apply that to a world where social conditions and physical conditions and every other condition is changing continuously, and how you take a a document that that applied to four million people or so in 1789 and today has to govern a continent of 300 million people of every race, every religion, every point of view. And you know, with 300 million people, we have 900 million points of view minimum. And uh, how you do that is not obvious. And the Constitution, in the application of it, adapts to the circumstance in order to keep the values the same. Now, that's the kind of thing that underlies that notion cliche, though it is. And I think that which underlies it is certainly valid.
2: Hey, guys, can we pause that? Right? Let's let's pause that before we uh, before we go on to the Scalia part. So um, first of all, as we talked about last week, there's only one race. Breyer said all the races, only one race. Um, But see how he works. I mean, obviously, he explains that, you know, articulately incorrectly, but articulately. So a living Constitution person says, Hey, listen, society's different today than in 1789. We have the internet, for instance. Therefore, because we have the Internet and cars and everything, then we can rewrite and interpret the Constitution to mean anything we want to today. It's it's an old baby with the bathwater approach. Because some things in society have changed, or heck, even because all things in society have changed. Therefore, the Constitution is meaningless. They'll say that it applied to a society and, and a people way back then and no longer applicable today. Now, the left doesn't r- throw away the whole Constitution. They just take away bits and pieces of it uh, and reinterpret parts of it to fit whatever they want. But when you do that, it's nothing but a prop, right? They'll wheel out the Constitution when it fits their agenda, and they'll mold it and bend it and chip away at it when they, uh, when they, when they want to do that as well. So in the end, it might, not, might as well not even exist. If you think it's a living Constitution, it might as well not even exist at all. It's just a prop. Let's say that I live my life according to the Bible, right? I live my life according to the Bible, but not that part, and ooh, not that other part, and well, I'm just gonna add this other part in here. Like, like, what's the point of saying you live your life according to the Bible if, if you don't like? It, it's just a prop at that point. And maybe Bible is too much emotion. Let Let's say I live my life according to, um, I, I live my life according to everything in Plato's The Republic. That's that's my guidebook for living. But not that part. Or this other part. And I'm going to add in a chapter here because I want to like, well, what's the point then? what's the the, it's just a prop. Same with the Constitution. And if you think it's a living Constitution, it's nothing but a prop. So Scalia says, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not that's not quite right. Let's pick it up where Scalia jumps in.
3: If all all you meant by the Living Constitution is that the Constitution has to be applied to new circumstances that were not envisioned at the time of its adoption, I wouldn't give it the name Living Constitution, but I wouldn't disagree. Of course you have to figure out how the First Amendment applies to new technologies, to radio, to television, and so forth. That's not what the fight is about. The fight is about taking pre-existing technologies, pre-existing realities that were there at the time the Constitution was founded, and changing the answers. I've sat with three colleagues, living constitutionalists, who believed the death penalty was unconstitutional. Nothing has changed. No technology uh, alters uh, whether that's a constitutional punishment or not, and yet the living constitutionalist could one day say, ah, because of the new circumstances of our 300 million people, we feel differently about it today than we used to, and therefore I am going to prescribe from the bench that you cannot have the death penalty. That's the kind of thing that I do not agree with in in the living Constitution. It applies not just to the death penalty. It applies to abortion. Abortion existed then. Nothing's changed. Nobody thought abortion was, uh, prohibition of it was, was unconstitutional. But living constitutionalists say it is. The same thing applies to, you know, prohibition of homosexual conduct. It's not the disposition I'm concerned about. If you want to change things, if these 300 million people want to change things, you don't have to use the Constitution to do it. Use the legislature, that's what we do in a democracy. And it's very undemocratic for the court to say, make the change. It's quite possible for the people to abolish the death penalty, to pro- permit homosexual conduct, or for that matter, same-sex marriage, and, and, to, and to permit suicide and all sorts of things. The issue is whether a judge can say the living constitution has morphed, and so what used to be okay is now not bad, uh, is now bad. That, that's, that's the living constitution I'm talking about, and it's, it's the one that I wish would die.
2: <laughs> and that brings us to judge gorsuch here and and to the wrap up the clip we played to diane feinstein that's what she talked about with uh, at the end of the clip she said um you know without a living constitution the constitution can't change basically and you're like well of course it can <laughs> you amend the constitution right you do it properly so what's the point of it what's the job of a judge is the job of a judge and and eight other people in robes in a marble palace, is it their job to be able to to change the Constitution at their whim? To change the law at their whim? If that's true, then what's the point of having it? Why, why even pretend that there's such a thing to begin with? What's, what's the point if nine people in black robes can just change it whenever they want? Of course, that can't be how it works. I want to come back and play, or, uh, talk about a case that Judge Gorsuch ruled on. A couple of years back when he was on the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals. And this is a perfect, a perfect example of how Judge Gorsuch will uh, will act as Supreme Court justice. And I think it's a good sign. And it's a good sign whether you're a progressive or a conservative. Because honestly, if you're a progressive, you don't want an activist conservative judge. <laughs> right? You don't want a, a, a conservative judge who believes in a living constitution. Because then he will just bend and manipulate and destroy the constitution to the conservative end conservatives don't want them. progressive sure as heck shouldn't want that they should be grateful that conservative justices are originalists and they follow the law as written i got an example of judge gorsuch doing just that we'll do it next mike slater show the blaze radio network spread the word this is
1: mike slater on the blaze radio network
0: This is Mike
2: Slater. So Simple quote from Thomas Jefferson. You've heard it before. On every question of construction, carry ourselves back to the time when the Constitution was adopted. Recollect the spirit manifested in the debates, and instead of trying what meaning may be, may be squeezed out of the text or invented against it, conform to the probable one in which it was passed. Um, I want to give an example of a, of a Gorsuch ruling where he does... Just that, and and it. This is all you need to know about how he will do his job as Supreme Court Justice, and he will become the Supreme Court Justice. There's no doubt about that. So this is a tough story for some people to see. So I don't I don't know where you'll be like so so if you get it right away, uh, just know that there are a lot of people listening who who don't get this uh, right away. But we'll, we'll break it all down here. So back in 2009, there was a trucker. Uh, a Trans Am trucker, over-the-road trucker. And he was stuck in the freezing cold, went to stop, get some uh, gas or something, and there were frozen brake lines. And he was stuck, couldn't go anywhere. So he called the supervisor and asked for a repairman to get out to him. And in the meantime, while waiting, he fell asleep. He woke up a couple hours later and started to feel numb, It was freezing cold. So he called the supervisor up and said, hey, man, I'm really, really cold. Where's the uh, repair guy? So the supervisor said he should be there any minute. You can either drive away or stay. So you can either drive the truck somewhere else or you can stay right where you are and wait. The trucker did not follow either instruction. He unhooked his trailer and drove away with the trailer unattended. And the repair truck arrived 15 minutes later. A week later, he was fired for leaving his load unattended. For leaving his trailer unattended. So he sued under OSHA. Made it up to the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals, which ruled two to one in favor of the driver. But Gorsuch was the one judge who ruled against the driver. Okay, let's pause here. So right now, I want to get all of our emotion out of the way. Let's get all the emotion out of our system. Was it wrong for the employer to fire the driver for this? Sure. It was wrong. Let right? like, 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 go with it, right? Morally, that was wrong. The employer made a bad decision, shouldn't have fired the employee. If I was the employer, I never would have fired the employee like that. Okay, what about the driver? Did the driver do the right thing? Sure. Saved his life, right? He was going to die there in the freezing cold. He had to do something and right. So get get all that stuff out of your system. The employer did the wrong thing, the employee did the right thing. Right? If I was the employer, I would never fire someone for doing that or whatever. Get all that out of your system because as a citizen or a regular walking around person, that's fine. We can have those judgments. But as a judge, none of that stuff means anything. It all means nothing. Your opinion And what you would do if you were in their shoes means squat. So this was Gorsuch's opinion. He said it might be fair to ask whether Trans Am's decision was a wise or kind one. And that's what we just did, right? Did they make the right decision? No, they didn't. You can ask that. But it's not our job as judges to answer questions like that. Our only task is is to decide whether the decision was an illegal one. Not a good decision or a bad decision or a wise one or a nice one, a legal one or not. He goes on, he says, now the Department of Labor says that the employee did not break the law. Because the law says, and see if we can follow this, the law says if a driver thinks it's unsafe to drive a vehicle, he doesn't have to. And the court says it's illegal to fire an employee who, quote, refuses to operate a vehicle because the employee has a reasonable apprehension of serious injury. Okay. So Gorsuch says. Yeah, the employer told him to stay put. Let me try this again. The The law says. Let's say you're a driver. And, and, the, and your employer says, you have to drive that truck. And you're like, uh, I don't want to. It's going to blow up if I turn it on. And they're like, no, you must. And you're like, ah, oh, no, I, I refuse to. I'm going to die if I turn that truck on. Right. And you, the, the employer can't fire you if you think the truck is dangerous. And the employer says, you must drive it. And you're like, no, I don't want to. Right. You can't get fired for that. But in this case, the employer said, don't drive the truck. And the guy did. So it's the opposite of that. It's the opposite of the law. So Gorsuch says Trans Am expressly, and by everyone's admission, permitted him to sit and remain where he was. And the trucker was fired only after he declined his protected option, staying put, and chose instead to operate his vehicle in a manner he thought wise, but his employer did not. And there's simply no law that anyone has pointed us to, giving employees the right to operate their vehicles in a way that their employer forbids. This is the key line of the whole thing. Maybe the Department of Labor would like such a law. Maybe someday Congress will adorn our federal statute books with such a law. But it isn't there yet. And it isn't our job to write one or to allow the Department of Labor to write one in Congress's place. I love that, right? So he's saying, listen, uh, sure, maybe I really want that to be the law, but it's not there. And I can't pretend it's there. I can't wish it were there. I can't fake it as if it's there. I can't let the Department of Labor make up a law because that's not their job, it's Congress's job. So, that's my job. So here's a man who interprets the law as written. You know, like a judge. Mike Slater Show, spread the word.
0: This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On
1: the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to
2: Mike Slater. So, I want to uh, share a story here that I think ties into uh living versus enduring constitution or or the type of person who would believe in a living constitution versus the type of person who believes in an enduring constitution this is uh from a couple days ago tucker carlson was talking with the ceo of the uh, something called the creative coalition and they were chatting about uh, the federal government defunding the nea we don't need to go into it we've made a few arguments from people who have received nea grants saying that it's a huge waste of money and just funds bad art the reason i want to play this clip is because this woman, who's for the NEA, is taking our advice. What do you mean? Uh, well, first, the argument she's making is such a stretch that she can't really do it with a straight face. So it doesn't it doesn't really work, but she's on the right track. Remember, I think around Thanksgiving, we started talking about moral foundations. It's the official word for them. I call them political languages. So progressives speak in the language of caring and fairness. That's their moral foundation. That's their political language, caring and fairness. Conservatives speak in terms of tradition and purity and authority. So if you are talking to a progressive and you want to change their mind on an issue, that progressive has a moral foundation different than yours assuming you're a conservative. So you must speak in their language. It is impossible to change a progressive's mind using your political language or vice versa. If you're a progressive, you can't change a conservative's mind if you're using the progressive political language. You can't. It's impossible. It can't be done. It's, it's no different than if you speak Japanese and you're trying to convince someone who speaks German to believe what you believe and you're speaking to them in Japanese, like it can't be done, right? You have, you have to speak their language. So here we have uh, someone in support of the NEA. So an artsy person, I'd bet a hundred bucks she voted for Hillary, right? So she's a progressive. So her moral foundation is caring and fairness. Now she did not go on Fox News and say, You should support the NEA because it's nice to support artists who are making the world a more beautiful place. And art is so great. And it's only fair that we, the people, support great art around the world. And we're caring for poor people by giving them access to art they may not. She didn't do that. Because that's all a language of caring and fairness. And that would work great on NPR, right? If she made that argument on NPR to the NPR audience, they'd eat it up. They'd be like, oh, yes, it is so fair. And it's so caring. And they'd love it. But not to a Fox News audience. So this woman is very smart. So she's on Tucker Carlson's show on Fox News. And she decided to use the moral foundation and the political language of conservatives. So listen to the kinds of arguments she makes. Now, again, she knows that this is a huge stretch, so she can't really, like I said, do it with a straight face. And I know you don't believe these arguments, but so I'm just focusing on her attempt to make conservative arguments, and and that is uh, wise on on her on her part. So listen to the language she uses. 1420.
4: Ensure that every citizen ha- has that right to bear, bear arts. but. It, but, but I'm. I'm not a I, mean, issue, I love the name. Not the abolition? right to
1: bear arts, and I, I and as long as I can put arts in a holster, I'm totally for it. But we live at a time when there are more rich people than at any time in world history. So, just for example, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, Warren Buffett together have more than 200 billion dollars. The NEA gets what 150 million a year. The They can fund gets it like that. Zero, zero,
4: zero point four percent that's that's a thousand thousandth thousandth of a percent of the federal budget and it brings in 10 times that amount let's just forget about the arts let's forget that the arts are what keeps america great let's look at economic development i mean i would assume that you're for economic development in this country
0: come
2: on so sorry guys do, do you have that clip still off chris do you have the original clip yeah, can you? There's another. There's another part of that. If you can pull up, uh, three fourteen to four thirty. Let, let me know. Yeah, no worries. Let me know when you have that. Um, Why do you have it now?
4: our government? Okay, go go. So there's a little more to this. Great nation, invest in something that brings back ten dollars for every dollar invested. That helps the military. That makes sure that underserved populations get to college. That uh-huh. makes for a better workforce. I mean, we have all the data, and it absolutely. Dumps me as mm-hmm. to why anyone would be against uh, such a small investment that okay. brings back such
1: but, a... Well, if it's return. such an investment, we, we should be spending tri- a trillion dollars on it. But let me just ask you this. You said it helped the arts. What, what role did the NEA play in, say, the Battle of Fallujah?
4: Let's look at the NEA and what role it plays. <laughs> right, Let's on. look at what real. role the NEA plays uh-huh. in making America great. Are we for you're on one team, I'm on another team, but are we both for economic development in this country? Right. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. Are we both here to? Are we trying to make sure that the next generation is a leading generation? You have kids, I have kids. Do we want them to be complete and full citizens, working to their maximum potential? Uh huh. I'm on the blue team. Yeah. No. No. I, I did. I
1: and I agree with you. Okay. You get the idea, right?
2: So. How did she frame her argument? She didn't say in the entire interview, and that's only a part of it, but in the entire interview, she never said, we need to fund the NEA because we got to help struggling artists, right? (laughs) She didn't make that argument because that doesn't speak to conservatives. She Instead, she talked about economic development. She talked about uh, how NEA helps the military, which makes no sense at all, but she said it improves the workforce. Right. These are conservative is the conservative political language. She called it an investment, which appeals to conservatives. Right. Conservatives are much more prudent with money. Generally, Um, conservatives don't like spending. We like investing different. Now, again, all of her arguments are total nonsense. Like, like how can the NEA spending a dollar result in the return of ten dollars like that? That doesn't make any sense at all. And as Tucker said, if that's true, then we should spend a trillion dollars on the NEA. Because then we'd have $10 trillion. Like that's, that's the dumbest thing ever. But the fact that she even thought of making that kind of argument proves that she was trying to appeal to conservatives. Oh, one more thing. She said, um, she said something like, you know, don't we want our kids to be, uh, leading and to reach their maximum potential? Oh, that's, that's such good conservative language. Right, she didn't say we want our kids to grow up to be loving and caring adults. She said we want them to be leading and maximum potential. Very, very well done, on her behalf. Now, very unfortunately for her, it, you know, it was such an absurd reach that, you know, she didn't really convince anyone of her arguments. But I brought up these moral foundation things uh, back in around Thanksgiving time for two reasons. First, if you want to convince someone to change their mind on an issue, they I mean, that's the most important thing is to be able to speak their language. You must do that. There's no other way. It can't be done. Otherwise can't impossible. So if you want to change someone's mind, you have to know their political language, but also to be aware if someone else is trying to convince you to change your mind, to be aware that they're speaking your language too. Right. And if we ever see progressives. Using conservative political language, it means they've caught on, right? They got the trick. They got the key. They know the secret and they're using it. Now, when the Democrats and and they're still in it now, although this whole debacle of healthcare kind of maybe snapped them out of the hysteria mode a little bit. We'll see. But if you're in hysteria mode, you're never going to be with your wits enough to speak properly the other person's conservative uh, political language. So the Democrats have just been running around with their hair on fire for a while, so they haven't even attempted this. But now that they can kind of get their feet under them for a little bit, see if they start speaking in ways that appeal to conservatives more. We'll see. We'll see if they're smart enough to do it. This woman was, and she did an excellent job at it. 188 933 Oh, whoa, whoa. real quick, to tie back into uh, Living Constitution versus the Enduring Constitution, originalist. So Living Constitution people, progressives, caring and fairness right so they look at the Constitution and they're like oh you know they didn't they didn't uh, include anything about gay people so it's not that's not it's not it's it's mean diet it's an old that's it doesn't apply anymore we need to you know change it to be fair to, right it's like hold on but conservatives they're originalists because they're like their political language is purity and authority and tradition so they're like no boom that's what it is there it is there's the Constitution. You want to change it you got to go through the amendment process but there it is i'm originalist about it right purity tradition authority right you can see how a conservative would be more uh, originalist versus a living constitution person who's more hippy dippy about it so you can see how that transcends uh, a lot of different political issues one 933 93 mike slater show the blaze radio network spread the word mike slater we
0: will continue in a moment on the blaze radio network
2: wrap up our uh, our judge conversation we can move on in the next couple hours we still have to talk about the, the health care debacle from uh the last couple days too we will do that i promise so this is a little tricky to know how this process works but in february in the ninth circuit court of appeals which is the most overturned uh court in the country um super super crazy progressive so they had a three judge panel a three judge panel back in february that uh, ruled against Trump's refugee executive order, right? The the visa refugee executive order. So the three-judge panel ruled against, and CNN went nuts, right? Just total, like, like, judges, to you know, destroy Trump, the breaking news, all that stuff, right? So that was in February. Well, the other day, a five-judge panel on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals not only upheld Trump's, Executive order dealing with refugees, but rebuked, strongly criticized the three judge panel saying that the courts have no authority to overturn the president's executive order on this issue. They have no authority to do it. Not only were they were they wrong in what they said, but they they couldn't even say it like it wasn't wasn't even in their their purview to say it in the first place. Now, did that get any media attention? No, CNN, CNN wasn't breaking news. We were totally wrong last month. This is what the, 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 uh, the five-judge panel said. They said, we are judges, not platonic guardians. I'll get to that in a second. It is our duty to say what the law is. And the source of our law, the U.S. Constitution, commits the power to make foreign policy, including the decisions to permit or forbid entry into the United States, to the president and Congress. Period. Which is what we've all said the day after he issued the executive order. Now, you can decide whether or not it was wise or not, but it was certainly was not something that a judge could come in and say he could not do. So uh, let's unpack this quick. So, so, Platonic Guardians. So, uh, Platonic, that's Plato uh, in, in the Republic. I and mean, Plato's the Republic, which randomly I mentioned half an hour ago. Um, there are three classes of people that Plato talks about you have the producers, the auxiliaries, and the guardians. And the producers are the workers, the auxiliaries are the warriors, and the guardians are the, the the smart people in charge of ruling over the people All right you've probably heard the word philosopher king those are the uh the guardians the philosopher kings so these judges are saying listen we're not philosopher kings here we're, we're just judges and it's our job to follow the law and follow the constitution and the constitution is clear that foreign policy is left to the congress and the president and we We have to show deference on this issue, whether we personally like it or not. Are you listening, Judge in Hawaii? Whether you like it or not, it's not your job to grandstand. And that's what this is. You have so many grandstanding federal judges that are making these huge stretches in order to rule on it at all. So there's something in the process called standing. Um, You know, someone has to have standing in order to sue. The government, You're right? someone just can't w- walk in and be like, I don't like this law. I'm suing the government. You have to prove that you are directly harmed by the law, that your rights are harmed by the law specifically. So in order to do that, these judges have made these huge stretches. Talking The, the Hawaii judge in particular talked about the hypothetical emotional well-being of people in Hawaii because of this executive order. And and he talked about the hypothetical scholars from Yemen and Somalia who might want to study at the University of Hawaii. And he talked about the stress and anxiety. I'm not kidding. He talks about the anxiety that this executive order causes people. (laughs) Therefore, this hypothetical person has standing and I rule against it. Like that That is a total joke. But he did it. And the media, instead of explaining the process, just runs with it, and then has these big headlines. And then everyone um, just thinks that that's the end of it. Even though you have the five-judge panel come down and say, whoa, the five-judge panel says that the three-judge panel, their errors were, quote, many and obvious. Quote, the panel's clear misstatement of law justifies vacating the opinion. Vacating the opinion. So they're saying the earlier decision that they made was so bad. it It was just malpractice that they should void the entire thing pretend it never even happened <laughs> holy cow but no one of course talking about uh, the rest of the story right cnn everyone else full-on coverage on the original decision crickets about this rebuking of that opinion it doesn't fit the agenda of course one 888 93 slater radio on um, on twitter mike slater show on facebook we're gonna come back we'll talk about uh, One of the outrages of the week, the Meals on Wheels. Donald Trump eliminating Meals on Wheels. Clearly not true.
0: You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.